You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews 7, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses today. Uh, And as you're turning there, go on and say it with me. We want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more. And we want to serve Jesus greater. That's our purpose for walking through this, at times, difficult book. Uh, I'm going to read you two places out of the Old Testament as you are turning to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Two places, and two places only in the entire Old Testament that speak of this Melchizedek figure, this Melchizedek person. In Genesis 14, the, the backstory or the, the context of Genesis 14 is Abraham has taken his men and he's gone to uh, pursue other kings, other forces, other armies to regain the possessions and the people. And he returns after his victory. And in Genesis 14, uh, beginning of verse 17, two kings come out to meet him, one of them being this Melchizedek. And in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, it says this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He tithed to this mysterious king. Then later in Psalm 110, uh, the only other place that Melchizedek is mentioned is a psalm of David. Uh, many, many believe it's a, what they call a messianic psalm, meaning it's pointing to the coming Messiah that was to, to be fulfilled in Christ and, and coming from the line of David. And here's the way the first four verses of that psalm read. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110 verse 4 back in chapter 5 in anticipation of that that section in chapter 5 we read a few weeks back before we got into the the deviation or the break where he talks about spiritual maturity. And in verses 9 and 10 in verse 5, this is what he said after quoting from Psalm 110 verse 4, being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What is the point of Melchizedek? Well, I'm going to give you a side point here to start off with things, and that's this. One of the things we learn from this comparison or this, this telling of Melchizedek being a forerunner or type of Jesus is this. We dare not overlook seemingly insignificant scriptures. If you were to think through all the people in the Old Testament and all the stories and all the great heroes of faith and how they pointed to Jesus, if we did not know of Hebrews chapter 7, we would probably look at those two instances of Melchizedek in the Old Testament and go, well, that must not mean very much. 
He's only mentioned twice. We don't really know anything about him, as we're going to see here in just a moment. And so it teaches us to don't overlook seemingly insignificant scriptures. Everything in the scriptures has meaning, has value, is part of the story of God and this grand narrative of God and his saving of us. Secondly, here we understand this about Melchizedek, not so we know him better, but so that we learn and understand Jesus greater. We're going to spend four weeks in chapter 7, and all, all of chapter 7 deals with how Melchizedek is this forerunner, this type of Jesus in the Old Testament. Remember the context here in Hebrews so far. We've learned that Jesus from chapter 1 is the Son of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We've learned also in chapter 1 that God is greater than the angels. That he's greater than Moses in chapter 3, the, the author of Hebrews tells us. That he becomes in chapters 4 and 5 a point that will continue to be expounded on through the rest of this letter. That he becomes our great high priest. And so this, this putting Melchizedek into the piece here is almost as if the author is anticipating a rebuttal that says, Okay, fine, he's greater than angels, he's greater than Moses, he's God's son, we get it. But what about the Old Testament priests? What about the Old Testament sacrificial system? Didn't that mean anything? Didn't it accomplish anything? Wasn't that the greatest thing that God had done? And here we're going to learn about Melchizedek and then bring that to Jesus to see the truth of this king that we have. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 1 through verse 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, in the other, by one of whom is testified that he lives. One might even say Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We begin with the name and the reign or the rule of Melchizedek in these first two verses. This Melchizedek, king of Salem. Melchizedek, by his, by his own name, is known as the king of righteousness. That is the definition. That is what his name means. And he's identified as not only the king of righteousness, but he's the king of Salem. Now, we say it Salem because that's the way we do things. Uh, it really is more the Hebrew word Shalem, 
which is the same word or a derivative of the same word of the word shalom, which means peace. So where was he king of? Well, most likely he was king of Jerusalem. Listen from Psalm 76, verse 1 and 2. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode or his temple has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. We know that his dwelling place, we know that his abode was established in Jerusalem. And so this king of righteousness, Melchizedek, is king of Salem, Jerusalem, before it really gets to be known as Jerusalem. He is that king of that most high place, that place that will play such an important role in the life of not only the Jewish people, but one day of all people who are on the earth. And so he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. And understand this idea of him being the king of righteousness. Righteousness is important, for without it, we don't stand a chance with God. I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. This is the way Paul writes it. Just as one trespass or sin led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. As many as the one man's disobedience were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul there is describing the first Adam to the second Adam. I spoke a few weeks ago that the Old Testament has all of these types and antitypes and a type or the foreshadowing of what was to come or what was to be revealed. And just as he's describing there the first Adam to the second Adam, the second Adam being Jesus, he's intertwining this teaching of how important righteousness is. Without righteousness before God, everything that we're doing right now in this moment is useless. Without righteousness from God, any prayer that we utter is meaningless. Without righteousness, any hope of us being saved is hopeless because we have to be declared right before God. The word is justified. It's having the righteousness that we need to have to be able to be in God's presence, for him to hear our prayers, for him to receive our worship, for us to understand his word. And that righteousness only comes from King Jesus. Melchizedek as the king of righteousness is the foreshadowing of the ultimate king, King Jesus, who gives us his righteousness. Why do we need his righteousness? Well, we need his righteousness because without the full righteousness of God, there is no being in the presence of God. And we need his righteousness because our righteousness is never going to be enough. When people say to me, so-and-so, man, he's a good person, she's a good person, so I feel like they've got kind of a righteous grasp on life. They do most things right. How do you grade righteousness against the Father? Does he grade on a curve? What if, what if the cutoff for righteousness in God's eyes is 70% good and you're at 69.5%? 
our righteousness on our own never measures up to who he is. And we may say things sometimes like, well, yeah, but my sin's not all that bad, or, or my sin's not as bad as anybody else. But James reminds us in his letter in the New Testament, in chapter 2, that whoever would attempt to keep the entire law and be righteous by it, but fail at just one point, is guilty and accountable for it all. The Bible gives us no loophole to say, well, I'm mostly good. And so because it gives us no loophole to say that, we have to have a king. We have to have Jesus. We have to have the one who has come and has lived and has died and has rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, having completed his work and is interceding for us on our behalf and is planning on returning and coming again. We have to have him because my righteousness and your righteousness never measures up. And though this Melchizedek is this foreshadowing, he is this, this type of Jesus in the Old Testament by the very virtue of his name. He's not only the king of righteousness, but he is the king of peace. Now again, that, that would be the defining of the city or the area that he was a king of. But understand that without righteousness, you and I have no peace. Without the righteousness of Christ that is given to us by virtue of our faith and trust in Him, without that righteousness, that right standing before God, we have no peace. We can, we can drill it down to just a very simple earthly level. When something is going on between you and another human being, and there's conflict, or there's distrust, or there's uh, anger, or there's sadness, or whatever there is, when you have that going on between another human being, you don't have peace. You might be able to fake it. You might be able to tell everybody, I'm all right. But the reality of it is, if that person is truly somebody you care about, you're in a relationship with in some way, you have no peace when that conflict is, with, is between you. Sin is the conflict that we have between us and God. And only through the king of righteousness does the king of peace also minister to us as well. But righteousness comes first. And when you have the righteousness with God through Jesus Christ, you then begin to possess peace. That word for peace is a word that means whole, complete. It means you do not lack in that with Jesus so he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace, Peace. he's also a priest. Look there again at the description in verse 1. King of Salem, priest of the most high God. Abraham actually tithes to him before tithing was a law. Now, tithing or giving someone, particularly a king or someone in a great position, a part of the spoils of war was a very natural process then and, and practice in that day. But it speaks to the way the priests were then treated in the remainder of Israel's life. The priests who came from the tribe of Levi, when God began to divvy out the land to all the other tribes, they did not get land. They were called to serve. They were called to serve in the temple. They were called to serve the people. They were called to serve God. And so because that's what their calling was, they didn't get the parcel of land. If you want to look at Numbers 18 this week, read Numbers 18. It'll tell you a little bit about that. But they received a tithe from Israel themselves. 
In the Old Testament, priests weren't kings and kings weren't priests. They didn't fill those two positions at the same time. Uh, another place to read this week, 2 Chronicles 26, read about King Uzziah who came into the temple and began to act in a priestly manner and things did not go well for him. So they, they weren't kings and priests, but they received the tithes. And so Melchizedek, as this high priest of God, receives this tithe from Abraham, pointing to his priestly nature. Look at his life story, beginning in verse 2. He's by first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, king of Salem, that is king of peace. Verse 3, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Without mother or father or genealogy. Again, an Old Testament priest had to be descended from Aaron, had to be a part of the tribe of Levi. And so if you've ever read through your Bible, you've probably gotten to all those genealogies and gone, man, what is this all about? Why do I have to read this? Well, again, don't overlook Scripture because the genealogies tell us. It gives us the line. It gives us the royal lines and the, the descent of, of one family to another through generations and generations and generations. But Melchizedek says here he's without father or mother. Now, was he really without a father or mother? Did he just poof into existence? Of course, we don't believe that. Did he really not have a genealogy? Did he really not have a family tree? No, of course, we don't believe that either. But the, the wording is such to say that there's a mystery about him and a mystery that we don't know, but again, how it points to Jesus. He has no father or mother, no genealogy, having neither a beginning of days or an end of days. Again, as a human, obviously he was born. Obviously somewhere he died, or at some time he died. But as the type to foreshadow who Jesus was, Jesus having neither beginning of days nor an end of days, Melchizedek is said to have the same thing. And then this really crucial point there at the end of verse 3. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Again, obviously he was born, obviously he died, obviously he had parents, obviously he had a family tree. There are some who want to make Melchizedek in the Old Testament a theophany. A theophany is when God manifests or appears in such a way that in some way, shape, or form, he's visual. So God in the, in the burning bush is a theophany. God in, in the forms of cloud and lightning and thunder in the Old Testament is a theophany. The appearance of the Ancient of Days, the one who's called the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, is a theophany. Some want Melchizedek to be this theophany, this pre-incarnate Jesus, meaning Jesus before he actually came to earth, and that he comes and towers over Abraham and gives this, this a sneak peek, if you will, of the Messiah. But the word resembling, or some of your translations may say made like, resembling the Son of God, made like the Son of God, doesn't give us the option of thinking that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. Because made like or resembling just simply means that there's some similarities. There are, are some same characteristics, but it is not one in the same. How many times have we heard, perhaps, so to speak, 
this person's the next Michael Jordan. This group's the next Beatles or U2. This, this artist is the next Van Gogh. This is the next great writer. This is the next great poet. And they compare them to somebody because there are some similarities or characteristics they share. But the reality is there's only one original. And Melchizedek being resembling the Son of God, made like the Son of God, is not suggesting that it is Jesus pre-incarnate, but again, simply that he is sharing with some of these characteristics. And the characteristics are this idea of not having father and mother, not having genealogy, not having a beginning or having an end. Now, we know the earthly Jesus had those things. But King Jesus, who has lived and will live forever, has no beginning, no end. He was not created by a father and a mother. He has been and will always be. And so as he talks about Melchizedek, he says there at the end of verse 3, he continues a priest forever. Again, obviously he dies at some point. It's not, it's not meant for us to understand or believe that somewhere Melchizedek is still doing the priestly work. But without a recorded date of death, his priesthood still applies. And again, the language is seen here in a foreshadowing sense. Just as Jesus is now a priest forever. Just as he is now our great high priest who intercedes and, and loves and works on our behalf. Who anticipates his return to make all things right to bring the fulfillment of his kingdom in. So too does Melchizedek have that to teach us about Jesus. And look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Uh, again, remember what we're dealing with in Hebrews here. We're dealing with the potential of Jewish Christians wanting to go back, to go back where it's comfortable, go back where they know. And the author comes and says, Listen, Abraham the patriarch the one who received the blessings, the one who received the promises, the one who was willing to sacrifice his own son, the one from whom everything stems, the greatest man you can think of in your Jewish tradition, see how great this man was. So great that Abraham tithed to him. So great that Abraham gave him uh, humility and service and honor. So great that David in writing Psalm 110 points to this Melchizedek as being the forerunner of who Jesus would be. This great king, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater than any. Why is this mysterious man important? Number one, Jewish history is our history. Let me explain that to you for just a moment. Romans 8, Galatians 4, Ephesians 1, all those places speak to we who are not Jews being adopted into or grafted into the Jewish people by Christ. This is the way um, Paul writes it, for example, in Galatians 4, verses 3 through 5. In the same way, we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and, of course, daughters. 
Because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son to our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Jewish history is now our history because we've been adopted into that family. Gabriel and Kiki's history, our two adopted kids, their history is now our history. Everything good and bad in my life and Alyssa's life and as many generations as we'll be able to go back one day now affects Gabriel and Kiki in a way that it didn't until they became our family. And so it's important for us to learn about Melchizedek. It's important for us to learn about who he was and and what he represented because we are now part of that story. We're now part of that story. Christianity does not replace Judaism. There's a a theology called replacement theology that says the church replaces Israel. That's a difficult theology to hold when we read places like Romans 11.1 where Paul says, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means. By no means. We have been grafted in. We have been adopted in. We have been made into it. Does it look different? Yes, but it's not replaced. It's redefined. That Israel has now become redefined, Jewish people have now become redefined to include we who are Gentiles, we who were beggars at the gate, we who had no chance. We are now part of that story. Uh, one, one of the guys that I read this week compared it to the caterpillar and the butterfly. The butterfly doesn't replace the caterpillar, he just redefines it. He transforms it. And the church that is now made up of Jew and Gentile alike, that is now made up of white and black and brown, that is now made up of Spanish-speaking peoples and Chinese-speaking peoples and Russian-speaking peoples and English-speaking peoples, that church is Israel redefined. And so it's important for us to know people like Melchizedek. It's important for us to know these histories because their history is now our history. But secondly, most importantly, it's this. Because Melchizedek points us to Jesus. Melchizedek points us to a king. And we need a forever king of righteousness and peace. Why? Because the main problem in our world is not political systems or economic systems. It's not class warfare. It's not racial warfare. The main problem in our world is sin. Mine and yours. And until we get that truth firmly fixed in our minds, not only will the book of Hebrews not make much sense, but really the rest of the Bible won't make much sense as well. So long as we walk around thinking, well, I am this much percentage good enough that God ought to be happy with me. Instead of saying, I am this much percentage unrighteous, unworthy, and I've got to have a king, a king forever who's in righteousness, a king forever who's in peace, a king who has come to gift me what I cannot do on my own. Until we have that truth fixed in our heart and that truth of what this king of righteousness, king of peace has done for us named Jesus, we will struggle with all those other things that I mentioned and more. King Jesus has come to save us. He's not come just to make us a place in eternity, although he does that. 
He's not come just to make life comfortable for us, although at times he does. He's not come to be at our beck and call like some sort of spiritual genie that we rub a lamp when we need him and hope he hides away when we don't. King Jesus has come to call upon us to die to ourselves and to live for and with him. He has come to rearrange our priorities, to strip away our pride, to strip away our self-centeredness, to surgically excise and remove our hearts of stone and replace them with new hearts of flesh, flesh that are geared to him and to his kingdom. And that is only possible with him as king. He is not our homeboy. He is not our pal. Does he love us? Yes. Does, are we called God's friends because of him? Yes. But he is our king. And God's wrath is only removed from those who plead allegiance to Jesus and to no one else. Now, don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. I'm not saying God's all wrath and Jesus is all love. Because Jesus is God's plan. God's wrath pours out against unrighteousness. But rather than leave it alone and say, well, they just deserve it, Jesus is God's plan. It's God's plan to send Jesus to earth. It's God's plan to make the pathway for the life of obedience. It's God's plan to call Jesus to the cross. It's God's plan to raise Jesus up in glory. Jesus the King is God the Father's method of calling out to this sin-ridden and sin-stricken world to say, you don't have to live this way. There is another choice. And it is the choice in the way of righteousness and peace. And that salvation is only secure as the one who offers it. And that is why we need a forever king and a priest in Jesus. Today we celebrate Independence Day. And it is a wonderful thing to be certain. We have been here, some of you have been here since maybe 9.30 or so this morning. And you've been in this place and you've not thought once is somebody going to come break down a door? Is somebody going to come bust out a window? Are we going to be hauled off to jail today because we're here worshiping King Jesus? This freedom, this independence is great. But understand this, you can live politically, culturally free and still be enslaved. You and I can live politically and culturally free and be, be in a free country, whatever that country may be, and have the freedoms and the blessings and the things that we have, but still be enslaved to sin. And to die enslaved to sin is to die independent of God. It is to die independent of Christ. The only freedom that Jesus came to give us is the good news of the gospel that came to the spiritually captive and the spiritually oppressed. He came to not destroy man, but to destroy the devil and his works. And to be free under Jesus is to be fully dependent upon that king. He does not give us a vote. We do not elect representatives before him. He as king of righteousness, he as king of peace says, 
This is who I have made you to be. This is who I am calling you to be. And if you want to address me as king, this is what you will do. And he does that through the truth of his word, the power and the presence of his indwelling Holy Spirit. Why is Melchizedek important? Because he points us to the greatest king that has or will ever live. A king of righteousness and a king of peace. If today the only freedom that you live under is an earthly freedom, then today is the day for you to look upon the king of righteousness and peace. If today the only freedom you live under is that you can be here and nobody's going to come arrest you and then you are free to go about and do what you want to do wherever else the rest of this afternoon and night, then it is time for you to come and look at the king of righteousness and the king of peace. For he came that we would die in complete freedom. Freedom from sin, never to pay a price for it, never to pay a penalty for it, to live our lives in complete freedom subjection and humility to the king thanks for listening if you have any thoughts questions or prayer concerns please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com